same. I can't tell you how awful it is when the ultrasound tech flees the room and gets another ultrasound tech, and then the two of them flee the room together, and then the radiologist has to come in and, and tell you what you just can't bear to hear. So um, when you lose a baby after the first trimester, it's a pretty public activity. <laughs> you know, A lot of couples wait until after the first trimester. And I'm, I'm actually very conflicted about that because I don't think anyone should go through a miscarriage alone, um, regardless of, of you know how far along you are. And, and we, we should, of course, never diminish one's grief or tie it to the, to the, the, the duration of a pregnancy. And, and you know, yeah. we, all, uh, we all appreciate that. So we were really devastated, obviously. And, you know, I was far enough along that I had to go to the hospital to have this baby. And I realized then that we have no language to talk about what it's like for a baby to, to leave its mother's body after it's, already, after it's already died. Welcome to the podcast, Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time. I am your host, Jenny Diltz, and I help people convert their grief into growth in their own way and in their own time. This is a podcast where we dive deeply into the stories that make us who we are and show us who we can become. Together, we share real-life experiences of growth through our grief. I can be found at grievingcoach.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss exclusive interviews and some of my own tidbits and insights on grief. Today on the Share Your Story podcast, I have with me Ingrid Bird. Ingrid is a recovering COVID-era hospitalist and family practice physician. She is a medical humanities graduate student at Creighton University and supports a greater presence of the humanities throughout applied health science programs. She is currently a hospice and palliative care medicine fellow at the University of Michigan. This fall, she will begin working full-time in palliative care for CHI, a large nonprofit healthcare corporation in Omaha, which is partnered with Creighton University. She will be joining the clinical faculty as a, as a medical humanities scholar. Ingrid's support team includes one spouse, one daughter, two dogs, and an old mare. Thank you so much, Ingrid, for being on the show with us today. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm so looking forward to your hearing your story and what it was like um, as a physician in the COVID era and learning more about the medical humanities and, and your transition into that field. Well, first me, I'll just kind of, oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, but before we get started with that, can you tell the listeners where they can find you? Oh, sure. I have a blog that I'm working on. It's still under development. Uh, so right now, the best place to find me is just to email me at ingrid.berg at sbcglobal.net and um, keep checking back. I'm, I'm working on a, a blog called thesufferingsiren.com devoted to the health humanities. Perfect. Okay, let's get into it. Um, so in your bio, you mentioned that you're studying the medical humanities. Tell us what that is so we can better understand this field. Definitely. The, the medical or health humanities is a field of scholarship that began about 50 years ago in response to the, really, it, it was in response to the limits of the biomedical model of medicine. There was this awareness that a, a traditional and narrow science curriculum is not really preparing those to enter 
um, the medical field with evolving technological and ethical challenges related to patient care. And it certainly wasn't helping us to maintain our empathy or really understand the patient perspective. So this is a field where everyone is welcome. Anthropologists, philosophers, literary scholars, clinicians, anyone can come together to look closely at how healthcare and the humanities intersect and by extension, how, they, how uh, this inquiry can help us better take care of patients and ourselves. And, and for me, this, this is an area of scholarship um, at the root of it can grow compassion. And it's also a place where a lot of social justice um, occurs, we recognize all the structural inequities throughout healthcare. And I think that really this is high impact, high stakes work. Um, and all of these things um, are, are the reasons why I'm so drawn to the, the medical or health humanities. And I want to bring up this concept that there's a professor, his name is Ron Carson, talks about, which is uh, that the, the humanities are a way for us to build our moral imagination. And, you know, we might gain some of that through lived experience, but ultimately it's art. It's, it's paintings and fiction and movies and songs and poetry and comics, essays. These are the things that we use as tools to help us explore this world, understand our patients, understand ourselves much better. Awesome. So it's like putting the people into the medical system. Back where they should be. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> so if it started 50 years ago, how come we're just like, how come it's not a well-known topic or a well-known career? It was something that began to take root in a few universities that were, you know, really passionate about it. It's spreading a lot more. There's a lot more schools that now have bachelor's degrees or and electives and concentrations and certificates in it. And now you're seeing more degrees at the graduate level. And sometimes this work is coupled with bioethics. There's overlap, but they're not, there's still some, some distinct elements to medical humanities or health humanities versus bioethics. And so it's, it's been gaining traction and becoming, I think, better known, but I think we still have a long way to go in order to really um, bring the humanity, bring the humanities back into medicine where mm -hmm. it should, it should always be. Is there a time that it, that the humanities were in medicine? Oh, that's a great question. Well, it, it used to be that, that doctors were educated in a little bit more of a liberal arts, you know, a broad education. And, and so they were like men of letters who studied everything. And then there was, um, there was concern that that medical school was not rigorous enough. You know, there also, you know, was a time when rich privileged people were essentially apprenticing themselves to, um, to doctors and, and that's how they became, you know, physicians. So this is you know, a long time ago, obviously. And so then in response to that, medical schools became much more rigorous from a science standpoint, but that was at the expense of like taking out a traditional liberal arts focus in education. And I think it was some of that, that shifting that kind of took out some of the humanity from, um, from medicine. And of course, you know, medicine at this time, though, was not diverse. It wasn't practiced by a lot of, you know, different kinds of folks. And now, mm -hmm. Fortunately, that's that's changed a lot, you know, over the last few decades. Uh, women, yeah. especially women, yeah. make up a, a huge chunk now of, of even majority often of, of medical school classes. Yeah. So, how did you become interested in the medical 
humanities, medical or healthcare humanities, medical or healthcare humanities. <laughs> and you know, there's some, you know, there's some sometimes some tension over those terms. You know, medical would kind of indicate just the realm of like physicians, and you know, we've certainly come to realize that these concepts are important for everyone who's an applied health science student or an applied health science, you know, practitioner. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a place where all of us should gather in healthcare, whether you're an occupational therapist or a physician or, you know, a nurse, um, there is always room for the humanities <laughs> for all of us in, in healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, and I think where would my roots have come in? I um, probably, I would think, I think about my mom, she was someone who loved language and literature and, and learned to speak uh, various languages. And our, our home was always filled with um, books. And um, I think that, you know, that, that a book can help fill your soul. And um, this sort of notion that, that education is, it won't necessarily cure everything, but it's certainly part of the solution. And so I think that's where my the roots of my humanities I would probably um, link to my mom. Awesome. So let's fast forward to your pre med time. How yeah. did the humanities play a role in your training? <laughs> well, I want to say that that when it comes to preparing for a medical career, I think that there are many of us who who imagine that this is created some, you know, kind of concretely, like in a laboratory, you know, you, you put these elements of experience, shadowing, studying, volunteering, researching, and you, you sprinkle them in, you know, the beaker and, and add some test scores and board exam scores and, and you mix it up and then your life happens. And that is not at all how the experience, the experience of life, you know, unfolds. And so um, I never intended to go to medical school. I'm not the kid who got the stethoscope at age five and said, I'm going to go to be a doctor. And everyone said, oh, we knew it then. Um, I, I studied journalism and I worked in publishing for a few years. And then I lost a job to a, a buyout. And I was at Lucenne's and I worked at an athletic club teaching swim lessons and water aerobics. And I liked it. But I felt this nudge to return to school. And so I started a program in kinesiology, studying anatomy and exercise physiology, and really felt at home in that, in that coursework. My, my husband was talking to a colleague about my studies at that time. And this, this colleague said, well, is your wife in medical school? And he answered, no, but I, I think she is supposed to be. And we talked about it. And I you know, kind of prattled on about how I wasn't smart enough and I was too old. And my husband was like, well, those are really just excuses. <laughs> and I'll, for the sake of the timeline, I'll tell you that I was 28 at that time, um, which is not too old to hammer out some pre-med coursework. Uh -huh. But we did have the question of when should we have a family? Um, now, there's never a perfect time. I think I think everyone would always would always say that. Um, and so anyway, I got pregnant while I was working on my prerequisites for medical school and things were going great until the middle of my second trimester. Um, I felt great throughout my pregnancy and I continued with my studies and we were just, we were just so excited. We'd been married for nine years and we were just so buoyed and bolstered to, to be having a baby. And then one day I noticed just the tiniest speck of blood, like something you would have needed a microscope to see. And this deep aching just, took over and I had no pain. 
And I was on the cusp of when you would feel the baby move. So it wasn't um, shocking that I hadn't felt the baby move because again, I was just kind of on the cusp of that. I called my doctor's office. I got an ultrasound pretty promptly. And it was, it was very quiet in that room. And I can't tell you how awful it is when the ultrasound tech flees the room and gets another ultrasound tech. And then the two of them flee the room together. And then the radiologist has to come in and, and tell you what you just can't bear to hear. So um, when you lose a baby after the first trimester, it's a pretty public activity. <laughs> you know, A lot of couples wait until after the first trimester. And I'm, I'm actually very conflicted about that because I don't think anyone should go through a miscarriage alone, um, regardless of, of you know, how far along you are. And, and we, we should, of course, never diminish one's grief or tie it to the, to the, the the duration of a pregnancy and, and you know we yeah. all uh, we, we all appreciate that so we were really devastated obviously and you know i was far enough along that i had to go to the hospital to have this baby and i realized then that we have no language to talk about what it's like for a baby to to leave its mother's body after it's already after it's already died and so, you know, this was a time of, of deep mourning and, and certainly, you know, um, depression. And so, you know, when you lose your baby, you lose that future and your present becomes just so murky. So now I'm faced with schoolwork and my prerequisites, things are piling up, I have incompletes and I, you know, I can't focus. And I found during this time that my professors were really helpful, like really just very, they were mostly you know, I was young. So to me, they were all these old guys, you know, um, who I think found it pretty hard to look at me. <laughs> um, but they were very accommodating and very helpful and definitely cheering me on. And one of them, my chemistry professor just said to me, my wife really likes this author named Perry Class, And I think maybe you might like her too. And I think this was probably my first like introduction to the medical humanities. Um, Dr. Plass um, is a pediatrician. She's a prolific writer. And very early on in her career, she cataloged her experiences as a parent and a medical student at Harvard. And this was at a time when very few women were in medical school, certainly not, you know, as a parent. And she wrote a memoir called A Not Entirely Benign Procedure. And she eventually became kind of a mentor through her story. And she eventually would write like fiction. She still, again, writes widely. And, and this this concept of blending the arts and writing and doctoring and reflecting on all of that was deeply moving for me. And, you know, this, this chemistry professor reaching out in that way was kind of like one of my first like integration points, like intersection points of, of my medical career and, and the medical humanities and how um, they fed into each other and how the humanities helped. I can fast forward a little bit. My husband and I get pregnant again. <laughs> I, I do finish my coursework in kinesiology and the prerequisites for med school. And then two weeks after that, my, my daughter was born. And um, I have a cousin who has five kids. And I once asked her, what's the hardest transition? Was it two to three? Was it four to five? And she says, oh, no, it's zero to one. And so um, I think that's how I felt. So things kind of slowed down. And it, it took a few years, actually, for me to get my applications together and take the entrance exam. And so when my um, daughter was, was four, I finally started medical school. Um, but during this time, before I started, I participated in a literature and medicine program 
at a local hospital where I volunteered. And there, I, I participate in a program called Literature and Medicine, and it's a humanities program started through the state of Maine, the, their Humanities Council, and it's spread to many states throughout the country. And, and we read these, these wonderful things. We read the novel, this is like 20 years ago, Saving the World by Julia Alvarez. We, we read um, Tracy Kidder's account of, of Dr. Paul Farmer, um, who very famously uh, worked in, in Haiti, and, and that book was Mountains Beyond Mountains, and also um, a memoir by Abigail Thomas called A Three Dog Life. Um, so I finally, you know, start medical school and it took me a little while to get my, my academic sea legs because I had been out, you know, of school a few years by this time. And I was about 12 or 13 years older than um, most of my classmates. So that made me super wise um, and, and super, super ancient. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and then the, the second time when um, in medical humanities and grief kind of collided, um, during the winter break between our first and second like semesters, um, we got a call that, that Bob's dad, my husband, had collapsed outside a grocery store and um, he had died. And, you know, it's, it's always unsettling and, and people want to know well, why it would happen. And we don't know. It, it probably was a massive heart attack. He also had um, uh, a widened, uh, you know, uh, aorta and that could have, that could burst. But anyway, the, the main point is that it was, it was unexpected mm-hmm. and he wasn't that old. And my husband, of course, was shattered. We all were. And I remember him saying like, I need you. Like, I need you. And I ended up missing a week of, of medical school. And while many people might not think that's a big deal, it's catastrophic <laughs> when you miss a week of, of medical school. Yeah. There's this adage that, that um, medical school is like drinking from a fire hydrant. You know, it's just, it's a lot of material, you know, add a lot of time. And so a week is a lot. And around this time I applied and was accepted to participate in a medical humanities program through the American Medical Student Association. It was a brand new program and I was chosen. And this is, this was kind of part of, of my recovery, I think, for um, the challenges of, of, of my miscarriage and, and my, my father-in-law dying. And the program was facilitated by a medical humanities like pioneer. Her name is Rita Sharon, and she um, is an internist. And she later then went back and got a PhD in literature. And she developed a concept called narrative medicine, which is, um, and maybe you've heard of it, essentially, you know, utilizing the tools of, of deep reading, of, of deep analysis of literature, and using those skills to decode stories, applying those to reading a patient's story, essentially. Um, and with the goal of better understanding them and, and, you know, building your empathy. So this was like really for, like fortuitous to have an opportunity to, to listen to and, and kind of, you know, at that time, I didn't realize like how, um, how well known she would, she would become as a, as a scholar in narrative medicine and how, um, how formative that would be and how, how impactful that concept has been to, to uh, medical humanities as well as um, medicine in general. Mm-hmm. Um, during my second year of medical school, I led um, a discussion group and just kind of kept the thread going. Um, and then things were kind of quiet throughout residency. There wasn't really time. I just didn't really process that way. You know, unfortunately, there's not a lot of time for processing, you know, in, in, in medical school and so, yeah. or in, in residency, especially. 
And then uh, I finished a family practice residency and then we moved to, uh, from the Chicago area to rural Wisconsin. And, you know, I'd been raised in Wisconsin and wanted to go back to uh, my home state. And I felt like called to work in rural America. And so that felt, you know, that felt really good, you know, go where people like really, really need you. And I joined a practice where um, I was doing kind of what you consider old school, old fashioned general practitioner. So inpatient work, outpatient work, nursing home rounds, taking care of moms and babies. And it was pretty consuming. Mm-hmm. Actually. <laughs> um, and about three months in to this new job, you know, I'm, I'm a new attending. I'm using my big kid job. I've just spent seven years getting to this point. And I get a call from my mother's doctor and she had come to her doctor for a preoperative physical for carpal tunnel surgery and was found to have gained a ton of weight. And her doctor was panicking. And I think that she called me as a courtesy um, because daughter's a doctor and she admitted my mom to the hospital and she didn't know if there was a mass in my mom's belly at any rate. Um, what happened is my mom was in fulminant liver failure. And this was just completely unexpected. And um, I'm sure people are like, well, why did that happen? And so um, my mom was diagnosed with celiac disease in her fifties. And this was a time when there weren't gluten-free sections at grocery stores. Mm -hmm. And there weren't like menus with icons to to, let you know if something was gluten-free or not. She really struggled with the diet and I knew she didn't adhere to it like all the time, but I didn't really appreciate how often she must have just completely blown it off. And unfortunately, when you do that, I'll I'll just kind of distill the physiology to a very simplistic (laughs) um, explanation to say that, you know, that the changes in the body essentially just bathed like her liver, her, her filtration system with, with lots of like, you know, toxic badness and completely destroyed her liver. And so um, I knew then that we had at most like two years before we'd lose her. And we did to the, almost to the day that she oh. died. So what was, so what was filled, why I was filled with just, I mean, there's obvious reasons why I was filled with grief at this point, but I felt like I had to make a decision and decide what kind of person, daughter, you know, clinician, parent, what, how am I going to live? And I, I made the decision, you know, unbeknownst to my, my partners didn't realize at that time that basically three months in, I was trying to figure out how I extract myself from this job because I knew I needed more time to be with my mom. And so I, I you know, from financially, you know, from a sign-on standpoint, I, I kind of needed to muscle through, like try to get into two years and I did. And I, I found a, a job as a hospitalist two hours away so that I could have like a week on week off. Mm-hmm. So I'd have more time to spend with her. And so this, but this was extreme. Like we bought a little cottage two hours away so that I could be a hospitalist somewhere else. And then I'd have these, these weeks off. So I, I was separated from my family, but then I had this chunk of time that I could be with her, but we only had, um, ended up to be that I made this, this job change. I only had three months then of that schedule where I could be with her every other month. So it was, you know, a lot of extremity that went into this decision, but I felt like that was what I needed to do. And 
just to kind of talk about the insanity maybe of a, of a medical career, my, my partner, we alternate every other week. He said um, in November of, this was November of 2017, he said, I want to work the week of Thanksgiving. You know, I just, I want to work 21 days in a row. You should take the week off. And I was like, are you sure? That sounds terrible. You should not work 21 days in a row. It's a bad idea. He's like, no, 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 go ahead. You, you enjoy it. And I thought, well, I just got to like take this gift and run with it. Um, those 21 days were really, um, very, um, unusual and, and very challenging. My, my mom lived in a senior apartment. We had moved her closer to us. And over the 21 days, she, um, got accepted to an assisted living facility. So in, in during that time frame, we moved her from her senior apartment to an assisted living facility. She lasted all of about seven days days um and went to the doctor's office they drew labs and it was clear her kidneys were, were failing now in addition to her liver which is a, is a common sort of you know um trajectory and so she was admitted to the hospital for two nights and then discharged to a nursing facility on hospice so we moved her you know multiple times in 21 days mm -hmm. from a senior apartment to assisted living to the hospital to a nursing home on hospice and then after we moved her in, it was December and, and decorated her room for Christmas. I then had to go back to work two hours away. And each day I listened to my husband very, very carefully. Um, our local house was just a block from the nursing home. So he'd walk there daily with the dog, <laughs> visit all of the people in the nursing home and my mother. And um, I could tell by what he was telling me that she was fading quickly. And so I drove back home after that week on a Sunday, right to see her. And she died on a Monday. And here's the insanity and just the insane part of being a hospitalist working every other week. So she died on a Monday, which was just enough time for us to plan a wake on Thursday so that we could have the funeral mass on Friday and like a family dinner Friday night into you know, Saturday gatherings. And then I could go back to work on Sunday and pretend like nothing had ever happened. Yeah. Um, and I never thought to do it differently. So if the next time you see your hospitalist, you might wonder like, what did you do on your off week? <laughs> um, and the insanity of that. And I, I want to give my, my colleagues at that time credit. I think that if I had asked them, I think if I had said, um, my mom just died and I think I need a little bit of time. I do think that they would have said for sure, take it and we uh. will cover for you. That's what we do for one another. But the, the thing that's, that's hard about medicine is that um, we're not conditioned to ask for that. We're not the, the culture of, of this field is that you muscle through, you push on, you don't take the time to do that. So I did, I went, I went back to work and I, I recently found an article by um, a hospice researcher at Stanford. Her name is Crystal Lynn Harrison. And I, she, I want to read a quote from her. She talked about how there was a time when she had a lot of losses that stacked up you know, in pretty rapid fire succession and how hard that was. And her, her article is titled Making Space for Grief in Academia. And I think, you know, this, this could certainly be, you know, extrapolated to include other fields like just community medicine. Yeah. She wrote, 
Academia rewards those who can make hardship invisible, who can be productive amid and despite crisis. Colleagues told me to take the time I needed, yet what I needed seemed unknowable. And so I would you know, argue that that too, um, for me, I, I certainly didn't know what I needed. You know, I had, in my mind, I disappointed all my partners in leaving my job so quickly. I had separated myself from my family, you know, getting a cottage two hours away to work so that I would have a work schedule that could better take care of my mom, who then dies three months into this new life. And then I don't even take time to process that because I, I got to get, I got to get right back to work. And mm -hmm. so, um, that was, that was how, that was how that, that played. That's how that played out. And so then, um, strangely, the local hospital where I had been affiliated earlier decided to go to a hospitalist program. And so it made sense for me to leave that job and return. And I, you know, I felt bad about that, but like, I needed to reunite myself with my, with my family. Sure. Um, and so then I was, um, you know, I was sort of committed to hospitalist medicine, you know, I'd kind of made this big change and, um, and things were going pretty well, you know, I was settling in and, and just appreciating, um, taking care of people in the rural setting. It was very satisfying to, um, take care of people. So they didn't have to like go to the big city and be away from their families. There's were a lot of farm families and, and I found that work to be, to be meaningful, um, until, um, until our world changed. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, uh, COVID descended. And, and um, so I, you know, joke that I'm um, a recovering, you know, COVID era uh, hospitalist. And um, what was, what was so hard about this, this time is that I, I had always felt that, um, that my rapport and my ability to connect with people at bedside was, was kind of my, um, that was my superpower. That was my skill set. And, and if you're a hospitalist and you haven't maybe had a relationship with a patient outside the hospital, it's, it's really important to try to connect quickly mm -hmm. and meaningfully and partner with them and, and get them to trust you. And, and I, I, you know, derived a lot of, a lot of satisfaction from that. Uh, but when COVID hit, of course, all of that changed and it, it changed so suddenly and, and there was just conflict everywhere and communication of course was, was stalled out because you didn't have the family at bedside. Like you used to, it was easy to communicate with family when they're all seated there and you're all talking and sharing and getting to know one another. Yeah. Um, but when folks aren't there, it's just really hard. And so, you know, of course, you know, you, you can picture the layers of, of PPE and certainly that, um, it's a great metaphor for, you know, what communication was like. And I've often felt that the greatest gift we can give one another is the benefit of the doubt. And that was completely gone. I felt like during COVID and, and I, it just seemed I had conflicts, um, well, that everyone was having conflicts with, with everybody. And we just didn't trust one another. And, and the expertise that I thought I had to offer the profession, um, was it was often denigrated and, and devalued and and that was new um you know for for me as well especially because um you know recommending 
PPE and vaccinations and, and certain treatments did not seem to be like driving outside my lane, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of, of, of my work. Um, so it was, it was very lonely and very isolating. And, you know, I had a family member threaten my life and, and, you know, we don't have security at our little hospital. We, we just, uh, so it was, it was definitely just a time marked, um, by, by, by deep sadness. And I, I thought, um, will I ever, will I ever get this back? Like, will I ever feel that I can build rapport with, with, um, with patients and their families and, and even the staff that I felt like I had great rapport with before mm -hmm. everything went, went sideways. Um, and I remember we were at our, we were at our little cottage. We still had the little cottage that we had, we had from um, the time when I was working two hours away. And I remember just kind of like sitting in the backyard and, and uh, I said to my husband, um, like, I need something like I really need something. And I felt like it was just this, this deep sigh of the soul. <laughs> like, yeah. And just to back up, like we, we used to have this joke, um, my husband and I, that, um, you know, I've been through a lot of school and he joked, you know, if you so much as think about a community college gardening class, I'm leaving you. And um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I said to him, like, this just like popped in my head, like, like the big light bulb, you know, the, the big thought balloon over my head. And that was, I think I need to study medical humanities, like, you know, like formally. And my husband was like, yeah, that makes sense. Actually, that, that makes sense. <laughs> and so like, I, I kid you not, I, we got in the car to go home. And I start Googling like medical humanities, like graduate program. 30 seconds later, I find that Creighton University in Omaha is offering a brand new medical humanities graduate program online. Send your application in now. Classes will be starting this fall. We look forward to hearing from you. And if that is not like the universe, like helping a gal out, like I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is. So I, I started this program in the fall and, and it was, um, just completely transformative, you know, just studying humanities and, and other things, you know, public policy and ethics. And, um, I've taken a course in graphic medicine, like comics and how that intersects with, with medicine. Um, and I, I also, um, took a course in end of life and it was at this time that I thought boy I I really think that um COVID has certainly um shown me how important it is that we work harder on end of life like I I felt like we did end of life often very well in our hospital um but certainly COVID um taught us um that we can do better and that we need to talk more about it and I I felt compelled to to just move into that area of medicine you know entirely and so it was in February of um, last year I was just kind of poking around thinking like I need I need this I need to find a fellowship and I just started it was just exploratory I'm going to look for a fellowship in hospice and palliative medicine and um, 
you know, I have a lot of family in the Midwest. And, and so I was looking in the Midwest and I, I saw that the University of Missouri had an opening or I not had a program and I called up the director or email, I'm sorry, I emailed the director and he emailed right back and was like, actually, we have a spot open now. You should come this summer. You should, you should do that. And I was like, I can't come this summer. Like, not right now. Like, like I was looking for maybe next year. Uh, but, but one thing just tumbled into the next. And again, uh-huh. it was just these snowballing, you know, um, opportunities and, and, you know, and I, I haven't really gotten into too much spiritual kind of stuff, but I, I, you know, I definitely felt that there was this, this overlay of like, you know, you can say you're asking the universe, but I think for me, this is all that was a, was one big prayer. And, um, you know, Creighton was part of that prayer and my, my uh, hospice and palliative medicine fellowship director, um, him just saying, why don't you come down and talk with us and, and start, start a program with us this summer. And so that, that is where, um, that's where I landed, um, at the, the university of, of Missouri. And so for me, it's, it's, it's been pretty, pretty magical that way to see how the, the humanities has kind of helped me through all of these like pretty excruciating, you know, transitions and, and, um, you know, unex- unexpected, you know, career changes, the zigs and zags, yeah. um, the medical of, of the unexpected medical, medical career. And I think, um, I would want medical students and residents to understand that that can happen and that, um, that you can be okay. Uh, because it, you know, it's for, for people kind of like maybe looking in may not realize like how traumatic it might be if you take a machete to your training and say like, I guess I'm not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, it's very hard. Or, you know, if you're not doing the thing that you thought you were going to do and you had spent like maybe seven or more years putting those pieces into place. Um, it's, it's just a really hard thing to, to adjust to. Um, and so that, that's something I think I have faced kind of over and over again. Yeah. As you were talking about that, um, like being shifted and like feeling out of place after everything that you've worked for, I was thinking that's, um, that's a grief experience. It's losing what you thought you would, it's losing your plans, your future, what you had hoped and expected, what you've been working for. That's seven years plus. And it can feel like that's all down the drain. Now what? Yeah. Like, yeah. Was it all, was that all for nothing? What was, what was the purpose? And then, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, I hesitate to use like sort of war imagery but like you know my, one of my best friends was like I'll wait for you like I was going off you know to to war and of course it's not it's not like that but the duration is the duration of training um is like that because again the it's minimum is like seven years and so and and you have really very little time not, not zero time but you have very little time for people you definitely lose all your peripheral friends and acquaintances kind of go and certainly many of your peripheral or you know a lot of hobbies go if you have any um and so it's it's such a it's 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 such a unidimensional experience really i think i think that's what what um medical um training um supports and encourages kind of is is being unidimensional 
And so you've been so unidimensional for so many years, and then you lose that dimension potentially, or at least that's what it feels like. And so I think too, that what the humanities does for us is, is it helps us be multidimensional again. We have to be people first, before we're clinicians, we're people. And I think what, what's hard is that, you know, I think there, you know, sometimes you forget your, your doctor is a person and we have this expectation, you know, you, you wear that white coat and you're a blank slate and you're supposed to have this one way, um, uh, you know, traveling of information and, and there's, that's not an interaction, that's not a relationship. Um, you know, and of course, I'm not saying every doctor should overshare about their life with every patient, but um, certainly um, I think we do all of ourselves a huge disservice to pretend that the, the receiver, the, the, the doctor is, is not a fully formed person with an interior life and struggles and, you know, grief processes going on potentially. And we, we just need to, we need to understand it, that and, and care a little bit more. Um, I think about that. And it's a really tough topic. And I, I certainly don't want to be like alarmist, you know, um, but, you know, medicine has an incredibly high suicide rate, you know, as, as, pro- mm-hmm. as professionals. And so um, I think that um, this is why like the medical humanities are, are, are not, um, are not a nice add on to, to the field. Like it's an absolutely necessary corrective. Yeah. And maybe a, a way of saving, literally saving lives, potentially. Yeah. With with just the clinical and the unidimensional aspect taking seven years, how would it how would it work to integrate the humanities into that training? So that it doesn't that, take like twenty four years. And, that's, and that is like that is like the eternal, that's the eternal struggle. Because I think when you talk about it, um, you know, I think, you know, you can, you can kind of sell a Dean maybe on the concept of it, but a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, I I think it it takes a village to educate anyone in the applied health sciences. And so, yeah, what do you, I think the panic is, well, what do you take out? Because obviously we want people to understand the anatomy and physiology of the body, like really, really well. Um, and I think that there are just like lots of really creative ways to do that though, that might also give us a little bit more of the humanities. And, and I think I found that, that graphic medicine might be a really great way to do that. So graphic medicine is like, you know, comics, but kind of related to medical themes. And there's this really rich literature of of graphic, um, like illness memoirs. And I, I read one recently by, um, uh, a children's, she's a children's like book author and illustrator, um, Marissa Moss. And she wrote um, a graphic um, memoir about her husband, Harvey, who died of ALS. And so this is all like, you know, illustrated. And so in it, she's talking about like the physiology of ALS, which is not common, you know, flu virus disease. Um, and then like all of the decision points, which are so relevant to like a palliative care doctor, like getting um, they may need to get a trach early. They they may need to get a feeding tube early, um, and so like really difficult decision points. And obviously, having kind of advanced care planning done in advance and preparing um, families for dealing with a very you know complex, serious illness. Um, you can learn about that 
but still get like the story of, of how much they struggled as a couple um, through that. So I think there can be some like innovative ways, but um, it's going it, to, it would take a lot of momentum for, you know, for teachers who've been teaching things a certain way, you know, all the time. Mm-hmm. But I think the reason why we have to be creative and work it in too, is we're finding that like compassion um, and rapport is just good for the bottom line. You know, when you have good rapport um, and you um, understand your patients, then you're going to put together better plans. And probably, you know, we're finding, you know, readmission rates, you know, could potentially, you know, go down in in hospitals and things. We know that folks are much less likely to be sued if they're considered to be kind, compassionate, good listening providers. So it's like protective against something else that could be incredibly um, traumatic for, for, a, um, you know, a doctor in healthcare. So it just makes, it just makes sense. I think, you know, ultimately we have to show, uh, medical school, you know, educators and, and, you know, executives that like, it makes sense because I think ultimately this is going to save us money. And, and if, if we also know that, um, there are strategies to, um, help build up empathy, empathy, we know, unfortunately goes down in medical school and training, and so, um, but there are, there is literature growing to show that we can work on this. We can measure it. We can actually build it back up again. Uh, and of course, if we want to retain staff and we want to um, be attentive to, to burnout, then um, I think, you know, the humanities can, can potentially help with that. And um, again, I'm not saying that this is this, this like um, view that I have and not just me, there's a whole lot of people who, who share share this this perspective um i'm not saying that it is a cure-all for everything every single problem in healthcare but i do think that there is a lot a lot for uh the the health humanities to offer yeah to bring people back into the place where people are being treated and helped and served right right back right back there yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) um from like I'm not in the healthcare medical system or environment all the time but it just to me it just makes sense if you're treating people and working with people then they should be seen as people and not numbers or clinicals or statistics or charts or graphs although those things are important too but that like numbers can't show everything for for sure for sure um so how can we support healthcare workers in this shift to incorporate the people and put the people back into the medical profession that's a great question. How do we put people back, like the humanity in the chart? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think a lot of it, um, you know, some of it begins with with language. Uh, we know that you know we we talk about someone not being compliant in the chart, and then and then that it kind of gives us an image, and that puts up a wall, and and we need to to make sure that we get credit for um, you know get eliciting the right stuff you know, the right information from patients. So um, 
for example, if we find out someone's not adhering to something and it's because they don't have a working refrigerator to refrigerate their medication, if it needs to be refrigerated or their pharmacy doesn't stock it uh, for whatever reason, or they're in a pharmacy desert of an, of an area, um, there's just a lot of reasons why someone might not be able to adhere to a plan and it may have nothing to do um, with them not wanting to, to partner with you. And so um, how we use language in charts is, is very important and um, we need to have a more diverse workforce because that is a better representation of humanity. And, and we know that um, disadvantaged folks and people of color gravitate toward providers who, um, you know, uh, providers of color. And so again, we need to work much better on um, diversity, diversity and language. Um, and we need to, to allow um, time for grief when it comes personally or professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the ideas of, of uh, my husband worked in human resources for, for many years. And, you know, he, he was always a big fan of, of thinking about the, the, why are you staying with us interview? You know, not the exit interview that, you know, and of course this can happen during a performance appraisal. Um, but like, but, but even maybe aside from performance, just like, tell us why, like maybe not tie it to that. So tell us why you're staying. Um, and I think that will, would be really helpful. Um, like doctors may not always get time off to grieve. So like if you're a hospitalist, you may or may not, you might lose income if you don't work. Like every day you don't work, you lose income. And if you have mm-hmm. big loans or something, so that, you know, re- healthcare reimbursement and, and solving all of that, Jenny, is not something we're going to do today, but um, making sure, you know, that it's not a disincentive to take care, take care of yourself and grief during, you know, um, especially I think when, when most people would agree that someone might need a few days minimum. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that suicide, suicide rates are really high in the medical field and it's no wonder like there's just from an outsider's perspective with minimal insight into what goes on, there's not much space for debriefing because you're patient to patient to patient for 12 hours straight. Um, there's, by the time you do have a break, you're so tired that like delving into grief or processing anything else is like, I, I just, I just can't, I don't, I don't have any energy left. And because of the medical medical needs are not like some other jobs maybe where you can take time off because there's always people depending on you. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have all of these things constantly, all of these constant responsibilities and a lot of them are urgent, where is the time and the support for self-care, for grieving, for doing what you need to do so that you're, you can have the resources to pour from a bucket that's not on fumes. No, absolutely. Well, um, well put. It's, uh, it's a battle and, and, um, 
the mental health stigma, I think, plays into that. So during COVID, one of the more famous, um, I mean, famous, but just um, well-known news event was a, a, an ER physician, Lorna Breen, who, who committed suicide and, and uh, her, um, her brother has started it like a, a nonprofit organization and, you know, to, to help bring um, attention and awareness to um, this, this phenomenon where a physician may or may not understand like what the licensing or credentialing questions even are where they live or their state, but might be so terrified that if they ever admit that they may have had an issue or been on a, medic uh, a medication related to mental health or have had counseling, um, there are those who may have a fear that they, that they will um, not be able to, to practice and, and that, that may or may not have, you know, be the case at all. And so she was so afraid. Um, she was so devastated by caring for COVID and, and struggled immensely and, and unfortunately, you know, took her life. And, and again, their, um, her family's, um, you know, uh, one of their, their, their main goals now is to get the word out on, on that and um, make sure that, that we have a world where, where physicians can be people and that um, they, that they have choices <laughs> um, and, and that they deserve to be taken care of and, yeah. and, you know, with whatever, you know, issue that they have and, and need to be supported. So, yeah, I definitely encourage you know, people to, to, um, check, you know, check out the work of, of her family's, you know, foundation. Mm -hmm. How can we support people, um, specifically in the healthcare field, uh, when they're under duress and during chaotic times? Oh, I think that's a, that's a great question, you know, and I, um, I certainly don't want anyone to think that you just, you know, oh, you know, we throw a poem at the situation or, or a book. And that's not, the, that's not exactly the point of, of medical humanities either, but, you know, certainly sometimes the well-timed read, but I, I think more than like the well-timed read, you, you know, it's that connection, whether it was like my chemistry professor, you know, connecting with me or, um, you know, it was, you know, connecting through a group and um, in, like in medical school, um, and then certainly um, a lot of support of, of the faculty in my, in my graduate program. I think that's, it's like that coupling. It's the coupling of the, the poignant, maybe, you know, read with a, a person. Um, I think we have to make sure that, that people can have the appropriate um, time off. And, and staffing is, is so hard right now because we know that, that there's been um, an exodus in certain places and more you know, traveling um, staff in, in certain areas. And, and so it's a, I think we're, we're still dealing with the fallout and the residue from, you know, the COVID crisis, which it's never really going to be over. It's just that it's, I think it's morphed and changed. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've, we're just kind of in a different place in this before and after world that we're, that we're living in. Um, I'm interested in developing a little bit more a concept of like the life review and, and we have this concept in like palliative care and hospice where, where one of the ways to help um, patients who are dying and, and, and attending to their 
like maybe existential or, you know, their spiritual or, or struggle, not just like their, their physical pain is to, is to help conduct a life review and, um, help to bring peace in and, you know, kind of work through, you know, other things that might be difficult. And I think we need to do life reviews, um, at other times too. And in other ways, like, I think, um, a retiring physician would probably benefit from a life review, um, because there are going to be the patients that were lost. There could be the, um, you know, the, the lawsuits, there could be something that, you know, has happened that, um, has, you know, so much grief still entrenched in, in those experiences that um, a healthcare worker may, may struggle to, you know, to put it one foot in front of the other, you know, whether or not even in, even in retirement. So I think a life review, I think interviews where we, um, again, where we say like, why are you staying with us? We want to know, like, and how do we keep you, how do we keep you with us? <laughs> yeah. I think those are, those are things to think about. Um, last year I interviewed Mario Fields. He's a retired U S Marine Corps person. And he was saying that in the Marines, when he was in active duty, he didn't have time to process anything, but when he got out, that's when his processing time came. And without Mm. that processing time, he may or may not have survived because there's so much built up and, and experiences, emotions, grief that he was carrying on, that he was holding on to. That's not healthy for a person to hold on to that much. And so I think with physicians, it might be the same holding that much emotion, experiences, trauma, grief, if they don't have that transition period or that processing period, that life review, like you were saying, it could lead to a life that's not very well fulfilled after retirement or even before retirement, like having that space to process and at least let some of the emotions go, some of the experiences go. I think that could be very valuable. I think that's exactly right. And, and um, I have heard there's of a concept like parallel charting where like as a learner or, you know, you might chart kind of the nuts and bolts of what you might typically chart. And then you have the parallel chart, which is like, Wow, it was really hard to meet this gentleman. He's got prostate cancer. And that reminded me of my grandfather. And mm-hmm. I started having all of these memories and I felt really anxious at bedside. And I was nervous that I wasn't then able to listen as well to this patient as I would have liked. And, and so I think it would be so interesting to read. I mean, of course, you know, strip the, the identifying things from the actual chart and have these side by side. I would yeah. love to see, I would love to see a textbook of this, a textbook of like, an actual chart about a human, you know, for life. And then the, the parallel chart of the person experiencing and filtering that experience and able to process what it was like to stand there or, or talk to parents whose kiddo just died or, or something. Mm-hmm. And I think we owe ourselves that parallel charting because then it shows us that we are interfacing as humans with humans. Yeah. And so that, that would be, that would be something I would love, 
love to, to be, you know, create, that's the kind of textbook that we need in any applied health science um, uh, curriculum is, is like the parallel charting textbook. That's such a great idea. And it's, I think it's something that could be integrated fairly easily um, because in the medical field, you're used to doing the charts, like after every yeah. patient. And then you could just take like a quick moment to do that parallel chart. Mm -hmm. Someone somewhere is throwing a dartboard at my face. Like, great, no charting. <laughs> <laughs> That's just what we needed. Thanks. So, oh, and you can't feel for it. So, <laughs> but <True>. yeah. <laughs> no, but I think, you know, yeah. for, for learners and yeah, with the point is their reflection too, of course. The point is, you know, I think there's so, there'd be so much value in doing an actual like written parallel chart, but of course the habit of the, the reflection and the, where am I at with this patient visit and, and um, whew, what, what residue do I have from that? And I think even if it's, I think it would help not only the, the, the learners, but the care, the caregivers as well, the, the healthcare professionals to express like just the act of writing it down, even if it's like one word, mm -hmm. it's that, that, that act of expression, which by definition gets those emotions and those experiences moving. So they're not stuffed and stuffed and stuffed and buried. In medicine, we're taught to, you know, gather the pearls, like the medical pearls, like, oh, you know, these little bits of wisdom and, and um, teaching points that are, that are, you know, lectures and, and our, our doctors hand off to us. And I think we need to also collect those emotional pearls, you know, like you were saying, like, we have to collect those and honor those and respect those. And, and, um, you know, at, at the same time as we're gathering up the, oh, make sure you give, you know, Make sure you get a blood culture drawn at this point or, you know, whatever. We also need, we need to honor the other piece, other pieces too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how can we prepare or help care, prepare or help healthcare workers with unexpected grief? I think just, um, I think we probably need to, to give more stories to our medical, um, students and and trainees we need to give more more stories of just like um of what what real careers are like you know i think in medicine we we definitely um get very much wrapped up in like the heroic story the like and then you know penicillin was discovered and then blood transfusions were you know standard practice and and then the stem cell research exploded. So it's all very like heroic and triumphant. And, and it's great that these achievements occur and that there are wonderfully brilliant minds that, that you know, get these things off the ground. But I think, you know, of the tens and thousands of, you know, physicians out there, um, you know, a, a career is, is, is not just that kind of like triumph you know um it is it is challenging and it's going to there is going to be these unexpected moments we have to, and I, so i think the first thing is like we have to let them know that they exist that this is mm -hmm. this is 
it's not when that's going to happen. It's not if it's going to happen. It's when your unexpected event occurs and you cannot study for everything. You cannot prepare for everything. And, and I think when, when maybe you're a little bit more of a concrete thinker and I certainly feel serious at times, um, it's like you, you cannot like board question your way through this, you know, like there's yeah. just, and I think, I think that's, um, um, what's, I think that's part of, part of the solution. Start there. I think, you know, medical students should, and residents should hear stories from real people from sort of normal-ish doctors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So starting with the, the faculty and the, the teachers bringing their humanity into the teaching yes. and the training. And I gave a lecture to the, the um, family medicine program here at the University of Missouri. And I, I did include stuff about myself because I said, you know, I think that if I'm living what I'm trying to teach you, and I was trying to, to teach them about the field of palliative care filtered through two graphic memoirs. One of them, when I mentioned about um, the gentleman who died of ALS. And um, I also talked about myself because I said, um, okay, you know, we're all people first before we're residents, before we're, we're clinicians. And so I wanted to kind of live that. Um, not because I think that my story is so exceptional. It's just more like I'm trying to model I want to model that humanity when I am teaching residents and medical students. I don't really know how to do that, um, except um, by sharing my own story. Mm-hmm. As we were, we were joking and chatting with you before we started, um, that I know that you've, you've asked at times, like, well, what did you learn about preparing for this? And that, um, you know, there was a part of me that was like, I've got to, I got to study for this. Like, I got to. I got to get my, my literature review done and, and nail this, you know, when, when I was before, maybe I just need to kind of reflect on, on my story. Um, and uh, I actually want to quote you. Um, you, you mentioned in your, I think your last interview, you said, we need to be taught to listen to our souls. And I love that. And I wrote it down. And you also said, um, you know, we, we need to go with the flow of our internal knowing. And I think that is what my medical journey has, has been, is that when I did do that, I found, um, first of all, when I was in grief, um, like in the, the worst of it, you know, my soul was just, um, you know, just, just leveled, just, and so if you, if you listen to that, then, um, you can, you can move forward. And so we, we ignore our souls, um, to our detriment. You know, we, we ignore those, those voices. Um, and, um, I think we also need to certainly encourage our students to be, uh, multidimensional. Um, and I don't think we do a good job of talking about spirituality and prayer in academia and yeah. throughout probably applied health science programs. And palliative care is wonderful because you don't have to apologize for asking about that. We, we have chaplains on our interdisciplinary teams because um, we, take, we try to take care of the total pain picture of our patients is, you know, you know, who, are, who are dying. And, and a chaplain is um, you know, like a Medicare required piece of that, of taking care of, of people. So I think that that is another, another um, piece of, of all this. Mm-hmm. 
whether or not you have religious background or upbringing mm -hmm. or belief yes. system, we're all spiritual beings. And so because we're spiritual beings, that's not like, that would be like ignoring our arm. Oh, my yes. arm doesn't exist. <laughs> yes. But it, it does. And that's a part of us. Whether like regardless and we're all individuals. So that spirituality is going to come out and manifest in different ways, depending on, on our culture, our belief systems, our, our soul, our voice, what feels good to us, but we can't ignore that part either. We do to our detriment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We could, but it's not, it's not very great for us. <laughs> Um, so we're almost out of time. Um, so I think the last question that I'd like to ask is how can we coexist with our grief and continue to work in healthcare? Oh. I think that I've always thought of grief and hard things as being kind of individual and compartmentalized. Like that, that bad things happen in isolated, you know, uh, events, you know, the unfortunate car accident, the, the aunt who gets a, a bad um, diagnosis. I, I think one, one of the gifts of COVID is, is that it, really has taught me the long game you know the wow like I think what was so unbelievable for me <laughs> like you think how how can we wait a second COVID's hard enough how can how can other things be happening too you know you know like my, my mother-in-law died at the beginning of COVID from chronic you know, long-term COPD it was expected it wasn't and it wasn't COVID related but it was kind of like oh how can two things happen at once like that's not that's not fair. That's not okay. Um, and so I think what, you know, we, we will always be living, you know, in this, in this realm of, of COVID post COVID. And I, I think for me, it's, it's, it's taught me, um, none of this can be, life is not something that can be compartmentalized. This is life. Life is grief at, and, and to various degrees at various times. And, and we have to recognize that it's, it's always going to be there because things are always going to happen. Um, we can't, we can't control everything. And I, and I think that is like the hardest mindset for, for like doctors and people in healthcare is like, we have to relinquish our control. We cannot control everything, even if we do a pretty good, pretty good job of, of controlling, you know, um, organ systems, we still cannot control control everything and i think when we we relinquish that then i think we we might have room more room to coexist with the inevitable grief of, of our lives and our careers you know over the long haul yeah amazing um is there anything else you'd like to add to our conversation today? Oh, um, I guess I would, I'd like to say that 
We should never ignore that deep sigh of the soul. And that when we ask for help, we don't know where it's going to, where that help might come from. You know, I, I didn't expect to move from one state to another um, at this stage in my life and sell a house I loved. And, <laughs> and now I'll be moving again soon to another state. <laughs> and um, very unexpected. And so maybe with that unexpected grief could, can also turn to um, unexpectedly interesting and, and good outcomes too. Awesome. I love that. Unexpected grief can also turn into unexpected good outcomes as well. And I think that's a perfect quote to end on. <laughs> because uh, one of the main purposes of this podcast is to showcase how grief can be converted into growth. And so that quote is an amazing example of that. Thank you so much, Ingrid, for coming yeah. and sharing your knowledge, expertise, experiences, humanity <laughs> with us and giving us tips how we can connect as humans, not only in the healthcare world, but outside the healthcare world with our healthcare providers as well. Thanks for having me. Yay. For our listeners who would like to learn more and connect with you, tell us again where they can reach you. I am working on a blog related to medical humanities. It's still in early development and it's called the suffering siren.com. And otherwise just email me at ingrid.bird at sbcglobal.net. Awesome. Thank you again for letting us come on this journey with you. And we will enjoy all the nuggets and take the pearls from our conversation. <laughs> so thank you very much. Terrific. Thank you. It's been another amazing conversation here on Share Your Story, exploring humanity one heart at a time. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in and receiving these stories. If you appreciated this episode, remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on special subscription-only content. If you are struggling with grief and would like to make it more manageable, schedule a call through my website, grievingcoach.com, and I will give you one tool that you can implement today. Until next time, remember that all of our experiences make us who we are and that we can turn grief into growth. You are known and loved in more ways than you could ever imagine. Your voice matters. So share your story. <laughs>